Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. So normally I do a podcast a week, but last week I had a really bad cold. I kind of lost my voice, had stuffy nose, was coughing, so I didn't record that week. Then I got over that and got some kind of virus or the flu. Uh, So obviously didn't record again. It's been such a blast, but I think I'm on the mend. So made me really appreciate this week's subject matter since I've been taking a ton of medicine. Opening a bottle of pills is never an easy task. First you have the cardboard box to open. Then there's the push down lid to struggle against. After that, a breakthrough seal. And last, a cotton ball to pull out. As frustrating as it might be sometimes, there's a very good reason that it's not easy. It used to be that you could just pop the lid off, maybe pull out some cotton, and be good to go. But between September 20th and October 1st of 1982, seven lives were lost when a killer tampered with Tylenol bottles, replacing the medicine with cyanide. This is the story of the Tylenol murders. 
on September 29, 1982, the Morning and the Kellerman household of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, was off to a kind of a rough start. Twelve-year-old Mary Kellerman was feeling under the weather. She woke up complaining of cold symptoms, so her parents decided to keep her home from school and give her some much-needed rest and medicine. They gave her extra-strength Tylenol, confident that she would start feeling better soon. Around 6.30 a.m., her father heard her in the bathroom. Then he heard something drop. He called out to her. No answer. He called out to her again. When he didn't get an answer the second time, he opened the door to check on her. And her father found her unconscious on the floor, still in her pajamas. An ambulance was called. Paramedic Dave Spring recalls using just about everything in his drug box to help her but to no avail. At 9.56 a.m., Mary was pronounced dead at the Alexian Brothers Medical Center in Elk Grove Village. Due to her age and untimely death, an autopsy was ordered. The medical examiner's office was notified. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Edmund Donahue would perform the autopsy. Investigator Nick Pichos from the medical examiner's office interviewed her father, and the police went to the house to confirm the story. The medication listed on the ambulance report was Tylenol. Firefighter Richard Keyworth recalls thinking that that wasn't anything out of the ordinary because everyone took Tylenol. That same day, 27-year-old Arlington Heights father of two, Adam Janus, was also feeling sick. He stayed home from his job at the post office. After picking up his kids at preschool, he stopped and bought some extra-strength Tylenol at Jewel Grocery Store. Once home, he said he was going to take a couple and lie down. He downed the pills and walked into the bedroom, and then collapsed on the floor and fell into a coma. He was taken to the Northwest Community Hospital Emergency Room, where he later died. The staff working on him thought it might be cardiac arrest because his heart wouldn't resuscitate. The Janus family was in shock. I mean, how could this have happened to such a young man? So the family gathered together at Adam's home to comfort each other and to make funeral arrangements. Adam's brother, Stanley, complained of a headache himself. It had to have been from all the stress of the day and the tears shed over such a horrible situation. His new bride, Teresa, attended to him by grabbing a couple of Tylenol from the bottle in the bathroom cabinet. Feeling a headache coming on herself, she also took a couple. Stanley started to go outside for a smoke when suddenly he collapsed. A few minutes later, Teresa collapsed too. Paramedics rushed to the house, and four people worked on each victim. Around 3.45 p.m. in Winfield, 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner wasn't feeling well. She had given birth a week earlier to her fourth child, and childbirth is rough on new mothers, believe me. She knew it would be all right to take Tylenol to ease her pain, so she swallowed two pills. Minutes later, she fell to the floor. An ambulance rushed her to Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. 
Dr. Thomas Kim, the medical director of the Northwest Community Intensive Care Unit, was getting ready to leave work when a nurse informed him that the Janus family was being brought in. He recalled the death of the young man earlier, and he assumed this time it was the man's feeble parents. Maybe the stress had taken its toll on them. No, the nurse said, it was the brother. It's impossible, he thought. That six-foot, healthy guy that was here earlier? Maybe he fainted. Not so. He was informed that CPR was being performed on the Stanley Janus and his wife. Chuck Kramer of the Arlington Heights Fire Department was just as perplexed over the situation. So much so that he contacted nurse Helen Jensen on the phone. He wanted a public health person at the hospital to assess the situation. She spoke with Adam's wife and, like a good nurse, asked a lot of questions about that morning. Dr. Edmund Donahue lived two blocks away from the hospital. He stopped by the hospital to grab a few items from his office when he overheard what was going on with the Janus family. He wondered what could cause three young members of one family to fall ill this quickly. Naturally, his first thought went to carbon monoxide poisoning. But since no one was sure, the rest of the Janus family that had been at the home was placed under observation. There was a debate over whether last rites should be given on Stanley and Teresa. It didn't look good for them. Around 6.30 p.m., 31-year-old Mary McFarland of Elmhurst complained of a headache to her co-workers. This is at the Illinois Bell in Lombard. She went into a back room to relieve the pain by taking some Tylenol. Her co-workers found her sprawled out on the floor. They thought maybe she had eaten something bad. A team consisting of Nurse Jensen, Investigator Nick Pichos, and several policemen then went to the Janus residence to see if they could find anything. This was around 8 p.m., and Nurse Jensen found a bottle of Tylenol. Six pills were missing, and three people had been affected. She was convinced that this was the culprit. To find out for sure, they took the bottle with them. About 50 minutes after that, Stanley Janus was declared dead. About an hour later, United Airlines flight attendant Paula Prince's flight had just landed at the O'Hare, coming from Las Vegas. It was a long flight, and her head was pounding. The 35-year-old stopped at her neighborhood Walgreens to buy, you guessed it, some Tylenol. So when the team arrived back at the hospital with a Tylenol bottle, no one except Nurse Jensen thought that this was the cause of the deaths. Dr. Kim was throwing around a lot of ideas in his head. The symptoms fit uh, cyanide poisonings, but where were these people exposed? One way would be to get blood tests. Nick Pichos then remembered an odd connection. The one medication listed on the ambulance report for Mary Kellerman was Tylenol. So could the nurse be right? He called the Elk Grove Police Department and asked them to rush the bottle to the hospital. Once it arrived, he compared it to the bottle from the Janus house. The control numbers on the bottles were the same. MC-2880. 
he immediately called Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue. Donahue then advised him to smell the bottles. Pichos replied that they smelled like almonds. So it was indeed cyanide. And that's fortunate because only half of the population can actually smell cyanide. Had it been someone else, they wouldn't have noticed. Donahue explained the effects of cyanide. It's a chemical asphyxiant. It blocks utilization of oxygen by red blood cells. You can be in an atmosphere with plenty of oxygen and you can breathe it in, but it doesn't get picked up by the red blood cells and you asphyxiate. It causes brain damage and cardiac arrest, and it happens very quickly. So this explains the initial suspicion that Adam Janus had a heart attack. When the lab reports came back the next day, they were shocked. The pills contained massive amounts of cyanide. Each of the capsules were laced with enough potassium cyanide to cause thousands of fatal doses. They now knew they were dealing with murder. Two more would be added to the list shortly after the discovery. Mary McFarland was pronounced dead at the Good Samaritan Hospital. Shortly after her passing, Mary Reiner died at the Central DuPage in Winfield. They now had a handful of deaths and were afraid of how many more might turn up. At that time, Tylenol was Johnson & Johnson's best-selling product and the nation's leading over-the-counter drug. And because of that, things escalated quickly. An attorney for Johnson & Johnson was summoned to the medical examiner's office. The company knew it would have to react. The news would most certainly be made public soon. And it was. A press conference was held to notify the public that they might want to examine their bottles. Police drove through Chicago, issuing warnings over loudspeakers. Johnson & Johnson sent warnings to hospitals and distributors. They halted all production and advertising. The tampered bottles had come from different factories in all of the Chicago area. That discovery ruled out sabotage during production. The bottles had all been found at different locations. Jewel Food in Elk Grove Village, Osco Drugstore near Schaumburg, Walgreens and North Wells, and Chicago and Frank's Finer Foods in Winfield. A cyanide-laced bottle was also found on a shelf at Dominic's near the Walgreens, where Mary McFarland purchased hers. And all five bottles led to deaths. Three others had been tampered with. Authorities suspected that someone had got the bottles at various locations over a period of weeks. They then added cyanide and returned the bottles to the shelves where they were unsuspectingly purchased. On October 5, 1982, Johnson & Johnson issued a nationwide recall. Over 31 million bottles were in circulation, and that's a retail value of over 100 million. The company offered to also exchange capsule bottles with ones containing solid tablets. Teresa Janice was finally taken off life support. 
and the body of Paula Prince was found in her apartment when she didn't answer the phone and was a no-show for her next flight. An open bottle of Tylenol was found on her vanity. She was dead in on the threshold of her door to her bathroom. The once vivacious blonde was seen on camera buying the bottle at Walgreens, but unfortunately no cameras were in the aisles to catch the assailant putting it on the shelf. The attorney general got everyone on the case from local police departments to the feds. Johnson and Johnson worked closely with the FBI and the Food and Drug Administration on the investigation. They wanted to have a part in searching for the killer or killers and wanted to prevent future tampering. The company actually got lots of positive coverage in the press for its handling of the situation and quick actions, but it suffered a huge financial loss. The market share collapsed from 35% to 8%. Since they promptly reacted, they won the public's trust back and rebounded in less than a year. In November, they introduced new triple-sealed packages. Within several years, they once again had the highest market share for an over-the-counter analgesic in the U.S., The most terrifying part of the case is that it was never solved. It's still an active investigation. So just let that sink in for a moment. There were quite a few suspects, most notably Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. He was the reclusive genius who made homemade bombs and sent them to universities and airlines, hence the name Unabomber. Starting in 1978 and spanning over 20 years, he killed three people and injured 23 more with his devices. In 1995, his infamous 35,000-word manifesto was published, followed shortly after by his capture and arrest. He was convicted in 1998 to life in prison. In 2011, the FBI requested DNA from Kaczynski. So what could the Unabomber possibly have to do with the Chicago Tylenol murders? Well, for one, the deaths occurred near his parents' home in Lombard, Chicago. Armchair sleuths reconstructed a map of the area of the reshelved pills, and his parents' house was dead center. And a timeline places him in Lombard at the time of the killings. There's also the wood link. Gazinski had a signature. He chose his victims because of their names or association to wood or trees. He even put twigs in some of his bombs. One victim, the president of United Airlines, was named Percy Wood. He used a fake name and address on one of his bombs. His name was Frederick Benjamin Isaac Wood at 548 Wood Street in Woodlake, California. Robert and James Wood were the founders of Johnson & Johnson. Some of the locations of the pills were Woodfield and Elk Grove Village. A bearded man is seen on surveillance in line behind Paula Prince as she purchased her bottle at Walgreens. Another suspect was 48-year-old dockhand Roger Arnold. He was overheard at a bar making alarming comments about the poisonings. 
He was arrested after police were called. They found unregistered guns and a small lab and chemicals at his house, but no cyanide. There were slight connections to Mary Reiner, too. He worked briefly with her father at a jewel warehouse in a hospital where he visited his ailing wife. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline line definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If on the psychiatric ward was opposite the shop where Reiner bought her tainted Tylenol. However, police couldn't find any tangible connections and he was cleared of any charges. The media circus that surrounded the investigation into him supposedly caused Roger Arnold to have a nervous breakdown. He personally blamed bar owner Marty Sinclair for the whole investigation. In the summer of 1983, Arnold shot and killed a man he didn't even know. 46-year-old John Stancia had the misfortune of resembling the man Arnold thought turned him into the police. Arnold approached him as he was leaving a bar. You turned me in, he said, right before he shot the man at point-blank range. He was convicted in 1984 and served 15 years of a 30-year conviction on second-degree murder. He died in June 2008. In early 1983, FBI profiler John Douglas was consulted on the murders. He had a theory that the killer may visit the gravesite or the house of the victims if he knew the locations. So in conjunction with Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green, the first victim, Mary Kellerman's address and grave location were published in a feature story. The article was published with the family's consent. 
but alas, after keeping the sites under 24-hour surveillance, no leads turned up. There was briefly another suspect, but ultimately no connection. Lori Dan's behavior was very unstable. She wore rubber gloves to touch metal. She would ride up and down on elevators for hours on end. She left meat to rot in sofa cushions. And then in 1988, she stole some books from the library on poisons. She then tried to poison several acquaintances with arsenic by giving them food and drinks. That same year, she shot and killed one boy and wounded five kids in an Illinois elementary school. She subsequently took a family hostage, shot another man, and then killed herself. Some think the poisonings happened at the manufacturing plants. Reiner's daughter, Michelle Rosen, thinks it was someone at Johnson & Johnson. She started a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for a film, and that film would request that the FBI close the case and unseal documents. Rosen claims that Johnson & Johnson only tested 10% of the recalled bottles. She dispels a lone gunman theory that the media suggested. Nothing has come from that in over 30 years, she said. And although the campaign generated $1,500 from 25 supporters, it was ultimately unsuccessful. The name of it was supposed to have been What Really Happened. In 2011, Scott Bartz, a former Johnson & Johnson employee and whistleblower, published a book called The Tylenol Mafia, Marketing, Murder, and Johnson & Johnson. He thinks the Tylenol was tampered with in repackaging and distribution links in the supply chain, not in the stores. He said, Not one bit of evidence ever supported the store shelf theory, except for only the fact that the people bought Tylenol and they died. Mary Reiner got her bottle at an enclosed pharmacy in the hospital after giving birth. And this supports the hypothesis of the distribution process theory. But the suspect that took the most heat in this whole thing was James William Lewis. I first heard of him on the history podcast, The Dollop. They do a pretty hilarious episode about this guy. Lewis had a pretty screwed up childhood. His migrant worker parents abandoned him and his siblings. They were separated, and then he was taken in by Floyd and Charlotte Lewis. They had very much trouble with this boy, so much so that they tried to return him to the boy's home he came from. And this is most likely because he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. In 1968, he married Leanne Miller. And the couple were happy. They started working together as bookkeepers at a tax service. And they had a daughter, Tori Ann, who was born with Down syndrome. James and Leanne started their own tax business after James lost his temper over a calculator at a previous job. Yeah, a calculator. Someone wanted to take a calculator home, and he totally lost it on them. James had quite the temper. And eventually, things went downhill after their daughter died. Then, one of their clients, Raymond West, went missing. 
Lewis, who was a friend of West, told police that West actually went to the Ozarks with his girlfriend. But another friend of West said he didn't have a girlfriend and never left for anywhere without informing him. So he filed a missing persons report. Police went to West's home and found notes saying he was out of town and another saying he was sleeping late. However, the friend said it was not actually his handwriting. Suspiciously, the notes were signed Raymond, but the guy only went by Ray. Police left without anything concrete to go on, though. But later, the friend was there, and he smelled something awful in West's apartment, and he found some dried blood. West's decomposed body was found in the attic. His legs had been severed, and the body was covered in a sheet and a garbage bag. It was 95 degrees, and he had been missing for 21 days, so this was not a pleasant scene. Authorities also found a rope and pulley-like system, showing he must have been hoisted into the attic. But their only clue to anything odd was a $5,000 check drawn on his account paid to James Lewis. Lewis claimed that it was actually a loan. After searching Lewis's car, police found knotted rope, trash, trash bags, and some of West's personal papers. He was arrested, but a judge dropped the charges after it was revealed that he wasn't properly Mirandized. Lewis's lawyer all but admitted that his client dismembered West. He said, It's one thing to kill somebody, it's another thing to dismember them after they're dead. It's not homicide pretty unbelievable. Lewis went on to run a fraud enterprise by swindling clients out of money and falsifying accounts. Under assumed names, the couple moved, and Leanne found bookkeeping work for Frederick McKay in Chicago. That business soon went under, but not before Leanne stole a stack of stamped envelopes from the business. All the employees' final paychecks bounced. So this is where we get to the Tylenol connection to Lewis. He incriminated himself in the case by sending an extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson to stop the killings. Here's the letter he sent. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little. And there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far I've spent less than $50 and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 84495970 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Do not attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. 
He told the company to wire the ransom to a closed account of Frederick McCahey, hoping to incriminate the man and get revenge over the bounced check. Yes, this man was doing all of this over a bounced check. He also sent a threatening letter to President Ronald Reagan about tax codes, and this really interested the FBI. Fingerprints on the letter were traced back to Lewis. He insisted he was only trying to draw attention to McKay and expose what he had done to his employees. It took a jury just about two and a half hours to find Lewis guilty of extortion. He served 13 years of a 20-year sentence and was released in 1995 on parole. He maintains his innocence. Many opinions are divided over whether he was actually the culprit. He didn't help his cause by theorizing in prison as to how someone might have done the poisonings with the drilled board method. He went into great detail, saying the killer could have used an ordinary breadboard. He would have drilled holes in the board with empty capsules, filled them with cyanide, recapped them, and put them back in the original containers and easily return them to the store shelves. U.S. Attorney Dan Webb said of Lewis, First of all, he's the one that sent the extortion note, which would immediately at least raise into question whether or not he's the one that committed the murders. And in 2009, the FBI reopened the case and searched Lewis's home. Released court documents show Department of Justice investigators concluded that Lewis was responsible for the poisonings despite the fact that they didn't have enough evidence to charge him. But he maintains his innocence. The FBI still has the case open, and they won't say why they're investigating Lewis again. Local investigators turned it over to the Arlington Heights Police Department. Of course, the Tylenol poisonings inspired copycats. On June 5, 1986, 52-year-old Bruce Nichol of Auburn, Washington, came home with a headache. So his wife Stella gave him four extra-strength Excedrin capsules. He collapsed shortly after taking them, and he died at Harborview Medical Center. Initially, the death was ruled to be natural causes, doctors thinking it was emphysema. A week later, another death occurred. 40-year-old Auburn bank manager Susan Snow was found unresponsive on the floor after taking two Excedrin capsules. And she was also taken to the Harborview Medical Center and died later in the day. During her autopsy, medical examiner Janet Miller thought she smelled bitter almonds. And tests confirmed that she had died from cyanide poisoning. The bottle she used was recovered and found to contain three of the 60 capsules laced with cyanide. Another tainted bottle was found in Kent, Washington. The makers of Excedrin, Bristol-Myers, recalled all extra-strength Excedrin in the Washington area, and a reward for $300,000 for the capture of the poisoner was offered. Stella Nickel told police that her husband had taken the pills and died. Their bottle had the same lot number as Susan Snow's. Police initially thought Bristol Myers was at fault, 
but the FDA found no traces of cyanide in the plant where the bottles had been packaged. The company recalled all Excedrin in June, warning customers not to use the product if already purchased. On June 24th, a contaminated bottle of extra-strength Anison 3 was found on the shelf at the same store where Snow purchased her bottle. A few days later, the state of Washington put a 90-day ban on the sale of non-prescription capsules. So Stella Nichols started to look suspicious. She claimed the bottles she turned in to the police had been purchased on different days at different stores. But the astronomical chances that she would purchase two contaminated bottles from two different stores led authorities to know she wasn't being truthful. She then refused to take a polygraph and had recently taken out a life insurance policy on her husband for over $100,000. Analysis showed Bruce Nichols' signature on the policy had been forged. Her daughter, Cynthia Hamilton, told police her mother had mentioned wanting her husband dead. She talked about poisoning him with cyanide and sharing the insurance money with her. Stella Nichol was indicted on December 9, 1987, charged with five counts of product tampering. In May of 1988, she was found guilty of all charges. She was then sentenced to two 90-year terms for charges in the death of her husband, Bruce, and Susan Snow, and three 10-year terms for product tampering. These were all to run concurrently. She'll be eligible for parole in 2018. Her charges were federal since the FDA made it a federal crime to tamper with consumer products right after the Tylenol murders. And she had obviously tampered with the bottles to kill her husband, and Susan Snow was just a casualty she was willing to suffer. So the one good thing to come out of all of this was product tampering becoming a federal crime. Companies also moved away from manufacturing capsules because they were easy to contaminate without anyone noticing. Tamper-resistant packaging was developed with induction seals on bottles and improved quality control methods. But it's really sad to think that we owe our safety while taking medicine to the lost lives of seven people in the Chicago area. I think it's one of those things we just take for granted. In fact, I wonder if even younger generations know of the Tylenol deaths. I can remember them, but I was very young. So now I can fully appreciate what is done to keep consumers safe, even as I curse trying to open a bottle over-the-counter medicine. Seven people lost their lives. Three in just the Janus family alone. There usually has to be a death that occurs to change a law to protect others. And this was certainly the case here. It's truly baffling to think that we're actually no closer to having this case solved than when it first occurred in 1982. So that was the Tylenol murders. I needed a little break from some of the more morbid cases that I've covered. And sorry for the delay in the podcast. 
Like I said, I was really sick with a cold and my voice sounded horrendous. But I think I'm on the mend. I'm ready to jump back into it. Thank you to everyone for listening. Check me out on social media using the Red Rum Blonde handle. And hopefully, barring any illness, you will hear me next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.